John chapter 7 is where we're at. We're going to be finishing John chapter 7 uh, today. And, you know, if you were to outline a rough sketch of this chapter, uh, basically you'd break it down into three sections. Disbelief, debate, and division. And, you know, over the last several weeks, we've looked at the disbelief of Jesus' brothers, we've looked at the disbelief of the Jews, and we've looked at the debate that's going on among the people. And the debate centered upon who is Jesus, and is his teaching good, or is his teaching deceptive? And here today, this debate comes to a head, and we see the religious leaders they're seeking to kill Jesus, and they are sending men, in fact, to take him. And, uh, and so we pick up the story in verse 32, and we read that the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning Jesus, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Now, when it says that the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things, these things uh, refer to what the people who believed upon Jesus and who believed in his word, the things that they were saying about him. And basically what they were saying is, who can do more than this guy has done? I mean, this has to be the Messiah. That's basically what they were murmuring. And this was a threat to the religious leaders, and uh, they, you know, hey, you're threatening our empire kind of deal. And so they weren't going to stand for it. They send now officers to take Jesus. That word take literally means to arrest and to take by force. And this is a huge turn of events in Jesus' ministry because from here on out, what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to be hunted and he is going to be hounded. And so they send these guys to arrest Jesus, but as we see, they, they didn't arrest Jesus. Jesus arrested them. Skip ahead, look at verses 44 through 46. <clears throat> it says that some of them wanted to take him, take Jesus, but no one laid hands on him. And then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the guys who sent them, and they said to them, they, these Pharisees and said to the officers that they sent out, why have you not brought him to us? Why, do you, why are you here empty-handed kind of thing? And the officers answer, answered, no man ever spoke like this man. And just absolutely incredible. We're going to focus on what Jesus said to bring him to that conclusion that no man ever spoke like this man in verses 33 through 39. But before we get there, let me just focus in right now. Hit the pause button. I want to focus in on a point of application from the verses that we just read. And the first point of application here that I want to make, and just have you write it down if you're taking notes, God's time is immovable. His time is immovable. It is set, it is certain, it is secure. If you were with us last week when Pastor Nate was teaching, uh, he pointed out in Mark chapter 4 how the disciples were fearful in the midst of the storm. And yet, Jesus had promised to them that they were going to the other side. They thought they were going to die on the way, but Jesus had said to them, hey, we're going to the other side. And, uh, and just as he promised, chapter 5 of Mark's gospel begins by saying, they got to the other side. Well, the same promise 
that we saw last week in Mark chapter 4 and 5, it's uh, the same promise that's at work here. That Jesus was absolutely untouchable because God's timeline is sovereign. And here's the application for us today as we really take that to heart. The same is true in your life and in my life. That it's been said you are immortal until God's plan for your life is completed. Now let's unpack that thought. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, he told them about all the trials that he'd been through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 23 through 27 in the New Living Translation. <clears throat> but Jesus, or Paul basically uh, telling the Corinthians, I've been whipped times without number and faced death and, uh, again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, danger in the deserts and on the seas. And I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And not only does Paul say these things to the Corinthians, but in Acts chapter 20, as he called the Ephesian elders together to, to exhort them uh, and really to commission them in, uh, in their ongoing work, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, and he says, with many tears and trials. And he, he continues, he says, see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that are going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but he says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here's the point. We all have a race to run. And regardless of the hardships and the dangers and the trials that we face in the race that God has appointed for you and me, we're divinely protected in that race. And until our mission is completed, God's purposes for our life, in us and through us, until those purposes are completed here on earth, listen, you're not going to get to heaven one minute early, and you're not going to get there one minute late. I'm reminded of a missions trip that I took way back in 1998. It was a missions trip to Indonesia. And uh, I went to the islands of Sumba and Sumbawa. And we were going there to strengthen the churches and to, to encourage them. There was an, uh, an expatriate church that uh, was there on the island of Sumbawa. And we were going to help them with a leadership transition and all. And when I was on the island of Sumba, we were, we were preaching in local churches and, and all. And um, there was an event brewing that I wasn't aware of. I had preached on the final day that I was there on, on uh, Sunday. 
And after preaching, just, you know, I had a little bit of time before we were going to start our journey um, back uh, to the States. We always used to joke that the the trip started in a big plane, and then the further we got into where we were going, the planes got smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, And uh, and this was certainly the case there. So I was going to be reversing that process, but I had some time. So I went down to the beach, and, and it was just me alone walking on this, this beach uh, on the island of Sumba. It was beautiful. And I ran in to a group of Muslim te- teenagers. And so I began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And, um, and, and they were, you know, you could tell that they were very angry. And I was trying in, um, y- you know, in just my level best to, um, in love, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Well, one of the guys in particular, I could tell, this if he could have gotten away with it, he would have killed me on the spot. And, and yet, I, and I don't know why, I mean, I was all alone on this beach. I don't know what I was thinking, but, you know, the, clearly I, I think the Spirit's speaking to me and just saying, share the gospel, that's what you came to do. And so I'm doing this, and, uh, and I end up, you know, leaving and nothing happens to me. But, you know, when I got back, what I came to find out, this was Sunday, On the following Thursday, an event took place on the island of Sumba that has come to be known as Bloody Thursday. And there were dozens of people, there was an uprising, and uh, and, uh, the Muslims basically started to attack and to kill Christians. And so what happened was there were dozens of people that were killed. Uh, There were many houses and churches that were burnt to the ground. The very church that I had preached in on that Sunday had been burned to the ground the following Thursday. Now, I have often wondered that if I knew then, when I was walking on that beach and encountered this group of, of Muslim teenagers who, who very likely, if not probably, were part of the, the thousands of Muslims that rose up and, and, and perpetrated uh, murder and, and arson and, and you know mayhem and destruction. And so I've often thought, man, if I knew then what I know now, would I have been so bold to share the gospel with them as I did? See, here's the thing. Like the Apostle Paul, in our Christian race, we will face obstacles. We will face trials. We will face hardships. We're going to have obstacles in our marriage. We're going to have trials with our kids. We're going to have hardships in our health, hardships in our finances. And listen, all Satan has to do is to get you focused on the storm in your life. All he's got to do is to paralyze you in fear, to get you to quit. That's all he needs to do. And that's the constant temptation. But listen, the Bible declares that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. Here's the deal. Your time of death is appointed by God. And until that time comes, you are divinely and supernaturally protected. Listen to what the psalmist declares in Psalm 91, verses 1 through 13. He says, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust in Him. For He will rescue you from every trap and he'll protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and your protection. 
Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the, angel, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, you if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. For He will order His angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. He doesn't say I'll keep them from trouble. He says I'll be with them in trouble. Keep that in mind. He says I will rescue and I will honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. And so, listen, we, we don't need to fear until God's purposes for your life are completed. You are, as it's been said, immortal. Until God's purpose and plan for your life has completed. Your time of death is appointed by God. Jesus said, who by worrying can add a single cubit to his life? And so we can trust in the Lord. But listen, there is a caveat to that. And actually, it's not so much of a caveat as it is a warning. Speaking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul warned them this. He said, you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the communion cup. For, he said, if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And that is why many of you are weak and sick, and some, he says, have even died. Paul is saying there to the Corinthians that, hey, we are to treat the Lord's Supper with reverence and in the spirit of self-examination. We do this every week. We partake of communion together. And he says we're to do so in this spirit of self-examination. In other words, we are to receive it with the right heart in the spirit of repentance and the spirit of realignment to walk obediently with the Lord. But, listen, Paul, Paul warns, if we don't do that, he says, if we are in active sin, and if we are stubbornly unrepentant in our behavior, then what we're doing when we partake of communion, remembering the body and the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our sins and celebrating the fact that He's redeemed us, what we're doing is that we're mocking what Jesus did on the cross to cleanse us from our sin. And in that instance, Paul says that sometimes God takes you home. You may be a believer who is, who, who you've trusted the Lord and your salvation is secure, but maybe you've gotten off that narrow path and maybe you're just stuck in unrepentant sin. And for some people, the Lord, and it's really His grace and His mercy, He's like, look, I didn't redeem you for that. And, uh, and really, you, you're not available for me to continue to accomplish my purposes and work that I would have hoped to do in your life. Uh, and so I'm just going to take you home. 
David Guzik puts it this way. He says, irreverent conduct at the Lord's Supper invites God's corrective discipline. So we should judge ourselves so that we would not be judged. If we will discipline ourselves, the Lord will not need to discipline us with his hand of correction. And he says the Lord's judgment is significant. Evidently, among the Corinthian Christians, some of them experienced illness and some of them even died as a result of God's corrective discipline. So my first point in our text today is that God's time is immovable. Second point, listen, is that our time is short. Our time is short. Look at verse 32. He says, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things, talking about Jesus, and hey, this got to be the Messiah, um, concerning him. And the, the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him by force. Then, verse 33, Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and, and uh, not find me. And Where I am, you cannot go. Uh, you cannot come. He says, then the, it says, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? What Jesus is saying here, he says, look, I'll be with you a little longer. Now, first of all, this is sort of a thumb in the eye to those men who had come to take him by force. You know, you can hear the men saying, hey, we're here to take you by force. And basically, Jesus is saying to them, no, no, not yet, not yet. I'm going to be here all night. Tip your waiters. You know, it's kind of attitude. It's like you might think that I'm going to be going with you, but I'm not, and I'm on a different time frame, right? But not only that, this is a picture of, listen, the brevity of opportunity, the brevity of opportunity. You'll recall back in John chapter 1 that, that John tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. When it says that Jesus came to his own, literally that means he came to his own things. He came to his own domain, right? He is the God of this world. Um, when it says that his own did not receive him, this refers to his own people. And when it says that those who did receive him, um, that to them he gave them the right to become children of God. That word right, that they received the right or he gave to them the right, it stands for authority. He gave them authority. In other words, in Jesus, you and I receive authority and dominion over Satan and sin and death. Paul put it this way to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. He said, since we have been united with Jesus in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we also live with him. We are sure of this, Paul writes, um, 
because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When Jesus died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. And so you also, Paul writes to the Romans, should consider yourself uh, to be dead to the power of sin and to be alive to God through Jesus Christ. Well, here in our text right now, these leaders, they think that they have all the authority, but they're completely oblivious to the brevity of their opportunity, to the fact that the clock is ticking. And Jesus says to them, look, in a little while, very brief period of time, a little while, I'm going to return to the Father, and he concludes, where I am, you can't come. Why can't they come? Because they, they lost this brief moment of opportunity in their lives through unbelief and through rejecting the Messiah. Jesus says, in a little while I'm going to return to the Father. Where I am, you cannot come. Why can't they come? Because they have no authority. They have no authority over sin. They have no authority over judgment. They have no authority over life. And they have no authority over death. And listen, guys, that may be the blunt truth for everybody who rejects Jesus Christ. And if today in the sound of my voice, within the hearing of my voice, you have rejected Jesus Christ, you, under, you need to understand that you are not the captain of your own ship. Uh, you might think you are, but a time is coming when you're going to give account of your life to God. But listen, for those who receive Jesus Christ, here's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Paul continues, he says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Basically, do good, try harder, keep all the rules. That won't save you. That's what he's saying. So, he continues, God did what the law could not do, what your good works could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so Paul continues, verse 4 of Romans chapter 8, he says, He did this, He gave His life for us, so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. The Bible says that the wages of sin is, is death, right? And so this is the just requirement. It was fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross so that the, the requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, Paul concludes, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. This is the hope for all believers. But listen, the time for that is short. It's short. None of us knows the day or the hour of our time here on earth. And Jesus basically is saying, look, I'm here now. And I came to save you. came to set you free. I came to set you free right now. Maybe he's saying that to you today. But Jesus says, look, if you reject me later when it's too late for you, you will seek me and not find me and where I am. You cannot come. And so God's time, number one, is immovable. Secondly, second point, 
our time is short. And now our third and final point, our time is right now. Look at verse 37 through 39. It says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, Jesus had not given his life as a ransom for many yet. He hasn't died on the cross yet. But when he does that, Jesus is glorified because that's the work that he came to do. And at that point, the promise of his Holy Spirit would ultimately be realized when the disciples, obeying Jesus' command, waited in, in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the church of Christ was born. You and I are the church of Christ as we profess faith in Jesus Christ. So it begins here saying, on the last day, that great day of the feast. This is when Jesus stood up and declared these words. The last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the feast that's being celebrated here, was technically the seventh day. And Jewish writers tell us that on the first six days of this feast, that the priests, they would go down to the pool of Siloam and they would fill up water pots. And they would then bring these water pots up in procession into the presence of the worshipers at the temple and they would pour out these water pots. And they did that for two reasons. Number one, to symbolize God's physical provision for them as they were wandering in the wilderness, which is what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about, also known as the Festival of Booths. They would go out and camp out remembering their time of camping out in the wilderness in the exodus from from, uh, Egypt. And God miraculously provided water for them from uh, from a rock. You you remember the story there in the book of Exodus. And so they would, would, on the first six days of this feast, they would pour out water to, to symbolize God's physical provision of water for them. But they also poured this water out to symbolize something spiritual. What they're symbolizing is the provision that the prophets had prophesied. Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, they all promised that a day would come when rivers of water would flow in dry land. This was a spiritual promise. See, again, they did this for six of the seven days. But on the seventh day, and this is key, that last day of the feast... There was no procession of the priests, and there was no vessels of water that were being filled and poured out. Why? Two reasons. Number one, they did not do that on the seventh day because what they were symbolizing was that there was no need for for this water to be provided physically because they had made their way through the exodus and they were now in the promised land. And being in the promised land, they, they were receiving all of the physical benefits that had been promised to them. Uh, and so on the seventh day, they did not fill up water jugs. They didn't pour them out because they physically were, had entered into the promised land. But the second reason, and this is key to our text today, is 
because the great promise of the prophets for spiritual water, that had not been fulfilled. And so Jesus now, as this crowd is assembled here on the seventh day, and as they're not pouring out water because the promise of the prophets has not yet been fulfilled, and they're looking forward in great anticipation to the Lord's Messiah coming. Jesus now says to this gathered crowd, I'm the fulfillment of that, prof- of that promise. That long-awaited day is right now. Right now. 2 Corinthians verses six, or chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 tells us, As God's partner, Paul writing, We beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For, he says, God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. And I want you to notice as we close in verse 37, Jesus says there, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That word anyone, literally in the Greek, it means a certain particular one. It's, it's not random, although it's, it's available to many. If anyone speaks to, any, you know, to anyone, God's promise for salvation is, is to, to anyone and everyone. But it's also the word that Jesus speaks that is used to, to declare this in, in our, our Scripture text. It's a certain particular one. The idea is this, that the promise, really, it involves two people. Think of Jesus' statement, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There's only two people that are in focus there. There's you and there's Jesus, right? That's the idea. And listen, he says, come to me and drink. And what will happen out of your, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Isaiah the prophet, he well articulates what happens when by faith we come to the Lord and our hearts are watered with the water of the Word of God. Basically his promise is that instead of the thorn tree will come up the cypress tree and instead of the briar will come up the myrtle tree. The significance of that is this, that when we come to the Lord Jesus by faith, when we receive by faith His Word, We come to Him, we drink. We drink of His Word. And we receive it by faith. What happens is that Word hits your heart, which, listen, I don't know the last time you checked, you are a sinner. You are a sinner, and your natural self just gravitates towards sinful things. And so what happens is that in the natural, as your your physical life, as as your your natural life is, is watered, you're just going to produce the fruit that comes naturally to you. That's, that leads to sin and that leads to death. But what Isaiah is saying is that when we receive the Lord Jesus by faith and the water of his word waters us, that we will produce supernatural fruit. Things that don't come naturally to us will automatically happen. If anyone thirsts, Jesus says, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers, a constant supply of living water living water. Well, as we close once again, 
we see two responses to Jesus' message. Look at verses 40 through 43. It says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. And others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? And so there was a division among the people because of Jesus. And listen, there's two reactions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's two reactions to Jesus' message. There are those that reject His message and there are those who receive His message. And as we close, as always, I want you to consider which one are you? Which one are you? Now in just a minute, I'm going to close in prayer and I'm going to give you an invitation today to consider, have you come to the well of living water? Have you drank of that well? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I'll give you an opportunity to, by faith, invite Jesus to come into your life and to make you a new creation. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That old things pass away, behold, all things become new. I'm going to give you that invitation in just a minute, but I want to give you three applications to take a walk with, three, three, application, or three questions of application um, to take a walk with this week. So number one, I want to ask you this, um, and, I'll, and I'll put it in, in words that you're asking yourself, am I thirsty today? And where am I going to quench that thirst? Everybody has a thirst. What is it that you're doing to quench that thirst? Because Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, the thing is, it's just like the woman at the well. This gal was drinking at the wrong well. And Jesus gave her an opportunity to take a good long look in the mirror of her life and realize that what she was thirsty for, she was drinking from the wrong wells and that thirst was never going to be quenched. She could only have that thirst quenched by the Lord Jesus himself. Second question, take a walk with this week. What are some ways <clears throat> that fear causes me to doubt God's plan and purposes for my life? Third question, are there any corrections that I need to take in light of Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 28 through 30 as he talked about how we come to the communion table?